Hi, everyone. My name is Terry Hollifield, and I'm one of the pastors of Reach Life Church. We're super excited that you've joined us here this Sunday morning for our online worship gathering. And we have been in a study on the attributes of God. And um, we believe that studying the attributes of God is always a great thing to do. I mean, after all, since God is the greatest possible being, then our thoughts about God are the greatest possible thoughts we could have. So it's always a great thing. But we found that especially in a time of uncertainty, a time of the unknown, that really fake, uh, focusing our gaze on the person of God has been a great thing. Um, and speaking of the unknown, today we arrive at the attribute of God that nothing is unknown to him. That God knows absolutely everything. And theologians call this omniscience. God is omniscient. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Now, we humans, of course, don't share the attributes, uh, that particular attribute of omniscience, do we? We don't know everything. And in fact, I'm learning more and more every day how very little I actually know. But God knows everything. Yet even the human mind is capable of amazing levels of knowledge. And I think if we look at that for just a second, it will help us maybe put into proper, awesome perspective the knowledge of God. I read where uh, one night just before the orchestra was about to go on, a bassoon player ran to the famous uh, conductor Arturo Toscanini, and he said his instrument wouldn't play the note of E-flat. And Toscanini puts his head in his hands for a moment. He says, it'll be okay because your notes, the note of E-flat is not contained in your music tonight. Wait a minute. Toscanini knew every note of every instrument in, of playing every part in every song for the entire symphony that evening. And he knew it all relatively uh, instantaneously and by heart. He was clearly a brilliant mind. Yet... In terms of comparison to the knowledge of God, Tuscanini's mind is a mere triviality. This amount of knowledge does not in any way compare to the knowledge of God. So let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Psalms. Psalm is kind of in the middle. Uh, so if you'll uh, kind of put your Bible, go to the middle of your Bible, you'll find Psalms most likely. And we're going to be in Psalms, Psalm 139. This is one of the Bible's passages that talks about God's knowledge. It's one of many passages in the Bible that talk about God's knowledge. But here, we're going to be reading a psalm that's written by King David. And it shows how deeply that King David thought about God's knowledge. And it's going to show us the impact or the result that was given when David pondered deeply the knowledge of God. So, Psalm 139, we're going to read verses 1 through 12 together. O Lord, remember that's Yahweh, that's the God who's actually there. David's praying to the Lord, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. 
Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall overcome me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. David is at one instant both perplexed and in awe of the knowledge of God, and at the same time, David is deeply comforted and at peace because of his understanding of the knowledge of God. Now, you might imagine that when we're talking about an infinite being who has infinite knowledge, there's no way we can cover adequately the topic of his knowledge today. So really, we're only going to kind of hit the tip of the iceberg. Um, But even so, even though we're only going to be able to hit the tip of the iceberg, I want us to, to look intently at God's knowledge. And with David, I want us to consider how vast, how deep, how truly infinite the ocean of God's love, or I'm sorry, his love is infinite, isn't it? But God's knowledge is. God's knowledge is vast. And then I want us to consider what that means for us personally. So first, what does it mean that God knows everything? Well, kind of just that. God knows everything. He knows every thought, every deed, every intent of the human heart, every future, everything that could be that but won't be. There is nothing that God does not know. And of course, because he's one being, all these attributes kind of tied together. This ties directly with the other attributes of God that we've already covered in this series so far and, and things that we've learned about God in our series on the book of Genesis, and the gospel of John. We have learned that Yahweh, God, is the creator and sustainer of all else that exists. We've seen that he is the sovereign king over his creation. And part of what all that means is that he created time and space with a definite and perfect plan for a definite and perfect purpose. So, Since God is, by his very nature, all-knowing, and since he planned the world and created the world, then he knows all things in the world, what we experience as past and present and future. And even all things before creation, God knows them perfectly and completely before he ever made a thing, before time ever began. That's what it means that God is omniscient. God knows all things. There is nothing that God knows doesn't know. Now, a very right and appropriate response to the understanding that God is such an amazing being is that we should be in awe of God and his knowledge. If all we knew about God was that he knows everything, we should be in awe of God. I mean, if our jaw drops when we learn that a a conductor knew every note for every instrument playing every part in every song for an entire symphony that evening by heart, and our jaw should drop at that, then what should be the response we have when we realize the reality that God knows every piece of data about every particle in all the universe 
universe, past, present, and future. How should we respond to the fact that God knows every single letter on every piece of code, on every strand of DNA that ever has, ever that does, or ever will grace the face of this planet? And he knew it all from eternity. And in fact, he made time itself and wrote the code of DNA to begin with. The appropriate response is that we should be stunned at the knowledge that God has. We should be stunned at the incomprehensible majesty of God. And we should worship him. That should be the appropriate and reasonable response of our hearts. And of course, our words of worship to God would already be known by God before we ever say them, right? David says that in verse four of our passage today, before our very words are on our tongue, God already knows them altogether and perfectly. Now, there's an elephant in the room, right? Um, While our hearts uh, may be worshipful toward God and in awe of God, God's knowledge being so comprehensive about you might make you feel uncomfortable a little bit. Like um, you might take David's words to the Lord in verse five, where he says he feels like he's hemmed in. You might say, yeah, hemmed in, like in a straitjacket, right? Like I have, I have no freedom. I can't go anywhere. So maybe while there's worship in our hearts, maybe in our minds, the idea of God being omniscient and knowing all, thing, all things might raise some questions in our minds. So I want us to look at those questions for a minute, because I think if we explore them properly, it will allow us to worship God more fully with our hearts and worship Him more fully with our minds. So I want us to look intently at that. So some common questions that are raised about God's omniscience or about other things in relation to God's omniscience is what about, the first one would be, what about human freedom? If God knows everything we'll do, are we really free to do it or not do it? The answer is yes, we really are meaningfully free. We really do have very real choices to make. So yes, God is the sovereign king as we've talked about, and you are free and responsible for your own actions. In fact, I would say that only if God is sovereign can you be truly free. I mean, think about it. To have true freedom, your freedom has to come from the ultimate authority. Well, in God's ultimate authority and sovereignty, He has chosen to give you freedom. Think about it this way. Think about, like, what if God wasn't there? What if there was no God and you were just the result of molecules in motion? You're just chemistry. You are... Uh, chemicals fizzing around one another, right? You are literally dust in the wind, so to speak. Well, particles of space dust have no will of their own, do they? Right? You would have no will of your own. What, what, in fact, what would it even mean to be you if you're just particles and dust? See, for only matter, if, we're, if there's no soul, for only chemicals, and we really have no freedom. To paraphrase the evangelist of atheism, Richard Dawkins, 
we would just be particles of DNA and we'd have to dance to his music, to its music. What that means is we would have no real choices to make. We could only do what the chemicals and outside forces make us do. But thankfully, Dawkins is wrong. God is real. God did make us in his image and we are much more than just particles and chemicals. We really do have real souls that make real choices. And you're probably asking then the next question. Well, if we're free, is God truly sovereign? How does that really play out? It's a great question, right? And there's a lot to be said about that. And in fact, there's a lot we can't know or understand. But what the Bible seems to be plain about, as I mentioned before, is that both God is in control and you are free to make real and meaningful choices before God and you're responsible for them. So we believe as a church that if you uh, diminish or reject either God's sovereignty or human freedom and responsibility, then you've kind of chopped off the biblical record in general and you've chopped off the gospel specifically. So we don't want to do that. We want to hold both of those truths because the Bible holds both of them. And check this out. I would say that what we actually see in the biblical record of history is that God is so sovereign and he is so omniscient. He is so all-knowing that he has actually baked in our free choices into his eternal plan. That may sound confusing, confusing to you, but the Bible is literally full of examples of this. But I want to show you what I mean by just giving you two of those examples. First, consider the Old Testament account in Genesis of a guy named Joseph and his brothers. Joseph was one of the children of Jacob, of Jacob and Esau fame that we have learned about so far in our study through the book of Genesis. And Joseph's brothers freely chose to do a great evil. They chose to sell their brother Joseph into slavery in Egypt. And Amazingly, by God's providence, when Joseph arrives to Egypt, he served in the court of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he had come to be second in command in all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. And it happened that there came a famine in the land that God had warned Joseph about ahead of time in a dream. And so Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of distributing all the, and gathering all the food and distributing all the food. Well, the famine reaches Joseph's brothers also. And Joseph's brothers have to come groveling to Pharaoh for food. What they did not know is that they would actually come to their brother Joseph groveling for food. Having sold Joseph into slavery, and by God's providence, Joseph has been placed over all the food, and now his brothers are coming to him for food. And in Genesis Chapter 50, verse 20, we read what Joseph says when his brothers arrive. Check this out. Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Did you catch what Joseph is saying? His brothers made a real, free, and yes, evil choice to sell him into slavery. They were jealous of him. 
yet God allowed them to do that. And I would add, according to the rest of the Bible, that God intended to allow them to do that from all of eternity. This is part of God's plan before creation. So that, Joseph says, notice in the verse, in order to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God eternally chose to use the free actions of human beings, even their stupid, wicked ones, to bring about his perfect and good plan. The other example, of course, is the crucifixion of Jesus himself. Clearly, the most wicked act possible is the murder of God the Son. And that is exactly what took place. There's nothing more evil, and nothing would seem to thwart the will of God more than killing God the Son. Yet, when Peter, the apostle, was preaching on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, preaching, uh, preaching a sermon about this very thing, here's what Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 23. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, listen here, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Here we have both God's sovereignty his definite plan according to his foreknowledge, and the free choices of human beings through which God accomplished. Even those evil choices, God chose to allow them to accomplish the ultimate good of purchasing the forgiveness and salvation for all who will put their faith in Jesus, even those who crucified him, should they put their faith in Jesus. That is mind-blowing. God is amazing. Um, by the way, um, it's amazing. This thing also, this kind of thing also helps us understand maybe prayer a little bit better. Because in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus tells us that your Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. This echoes David's thoughts in our passage, right? Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, behold, you know it all together. So you might ask then, should we even pray? Should we pray? But the context of Jesus' words in, in Matthew is teaching people not only that they should pray, but how to pray. So even though God knows what we will pray, even before we do, should we still pray? And why? Well, since we've seen that God uses our free actions to accomplish His eternal and perfect and good plan, isn't prayer an action? Isn't prayer something that we do? Isn't it then reasonable to consider that God would use our prayers to accomplish His plan in the world and His plan in our own hearts, most importantly? I think it's a very reasonable thing. Uh, one of my friends and mentors, Dennis Thurman, and he may have stolen this quote from somebody else. Dennis, if you're watching, I'll give you credit. Dennis Thurman, I heard Dennis say one time, he gave a summary about why we should pray. I thought it was extremely wise. He said that without God, we cannot. In other words, without God, we can't do anything. And often, 
without our prayers, God will not. Right? So without God, we cannot. And sometimes without our prayers, God will not. So yes, pray, right? Pray to the Lord. This is why we're taught in James 4, we have not because we ask not. Or because we ask and we ask with wrong motives. This is why, although God wants us to voice our desires and our wants and our needs and our cares and our burdens to him, Jesus taught to pray that ultimately God's will be done, not ours, because sometimes we don't know how to pray. Right? Sometimes we don't know what God's eternal plan is. In fact, very little about God's eternal plan do I know unless it's recorded in Scripture. Right? So I need to pray according to the best I know, but submit that I, you know, this isn't my kingdom. This is God's kingdom. I don't always know how to pray, but I can ultimately trust God's plan. And I pray that God will move your heart to be able to trust his plan also. Um, this brings us to why we should be glad that God knows everything. I think it should make us glad. It should make us hopeful. Dr. David Jeremiah gives an example of two farmers. And he says that um, there's a wheat farmer on one side of town, and he's praying that there will be one more good soaking rain so that the grain will be ripe for harvest. Because if he doesn't get this harvest, this wheat farmer is going to lose everything. Yet on the other side of town is a tomato farmer who's praying that there will not be a soaking rain because it would result in muddy fields and not he won't be able to harvest his tomatoes. And it might even give a blight to those tomatoes. So you've got two guys praying to the one God for two, two different things. How in the world should this work out? What is the best outcome? Whose prayer will God answer and why? Truly. Only God can know how this is going to work out in six months. How those things are going to work out in a year or five years or ten or a lifetime. We can't possibly know that. Truly, only God can know. And truly, only God does know. And He does know. You know, this type of thing is true in, our, in all of our lives, not just the farmers. All of us are praying, seeking God, countless times of every in every second of every day, and all of these things are woven together in ways that we cannot possibly imagine. We don't know how all of this stuff works and how our lives fit together, yet all of them are woven, woven together. And the all-knowing, all-wise, all-good, eternal plan of God can be trusted when we don't know. We know that he does know. David Jeremiah says, Our God knows the strength of suffering, the hurt of prosperity, the happiness of simplicity, and the success that arises from our perceived failures. He knows the end from the beginning. He sees it all at once, eternally, infinitely. Because, because he knows it all, we can trust him even in the darkest times. He never makes a mistake. He never fails us. This is what David was saying in our passage. Read it again with me, beginning in verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? 
or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. You know, that is the sense that David says um, previously that he's hemmed in, right? He's, he's saying it's a good thing. It's not a straight jacket. It's more like the swaddling comfort and peace and rest of a baby. It's being swaddled. He's enclosed by the knowledge and the wisdom and the presence of God himself. That's a great thing. And we can know that because of God's knowledge. God sees you. He knows you. That's how the psalm started, right? Lord, you have known me. You you see my life. You, You know my thoughts, yet you love me. You care for me. See, we don't know in our lives how the final chapter is going to be. And that final chapter, by the way, ends with the beginning of the everlasting time. But God does know, and he promises to be with us in it and that it will be worth it. This is astounding. God is all-knowing, and as we will see next week, he is also all-powerful. This God stands at the gate of the kingdom of heaven, waiting for you. He wants you to trust him. He wants you to enter the door to that gate. Do you remember the words of Jesus? God in the flesh and what he said in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. I came, says Jesus, that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Turn to Jesus. Turn to the good shepherd. Maybe for the very first time or for the first time in a long time. He knows you. And he wants you to know him. And knowing Jesus is life and life to the full.